Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, A City in Need of a Savior. Amen. Well, while he was on his second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul traveled to the city of Corinth. And we want to kind of help you get your bearings. And so there's a map, probably of Paul's second missionary journey there. But you see in the upper left-hand corner, the boot. So that's Italy. And then you see on the right, um, Asia Minor, uh, which is modern-day Turkey. You follow down the right side of the screen. And there, of course, you have Syria and Israel um, there. And then the bottom um, of the screen, of course, is Africa. The Mediterranean Sea dominates the screen. But right in the middle, you have Greece. And so Corinth, the city of Corinth, was and is today. It still survives to, to this day. It was and is in Greece. It's about 50 miles west of Athens. And now in those days, first century, the Roman Empire ruled the civilized world. And so Corinth would be in the Roman province of Achaia. Now, Corinth was a unique city and it was renowned throughout the empire for citizens, get this, Citizens who knew how to work hard, who knew how to play hard, and they knew how to party hard. The citizens of Corinth, first of all, they knew how to work hard. Corinth was a major seaport city there in the first century, and so it attracted business and trade and commerce from all over the Mediterranean Sea and the cities around the Mediterranean Sea. And so the people knew how to work hard. They also knew how to play hard. Corinth was the host of the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympiad. And so people from all around the Roman Empire would, would converge on Corinth in order to watch athletes, and they would compete in boxing and wrestling and chariot races and other events. So they knew how to work hard. They knew how to play hard. They also knew how to party hard. Corinth was renowned um, for its wild parties. The citizens of Corinth indulged in every form of immoral pleasure imaginable. And so around the empire in Roman society, the Corinthians were known as the party animals. That's the reputation that they had. In fact, if you lived anywhere in the Roman empire and you wanted to um, go to a play, a Roman play, Often, one of the characters in that Roman play would be called the Corinthian. And the Corinthian, that actor, that character, was always depicted as somebody who had loose morals and who drank too much. In fact, if you lived anywhere in the empire and you had a reputation of promiscuity or drinking too much, you know, you're always inebriated, they had a saying for you. They would say, Throughout the empire, whether you lived in Corinth or not, they would say, you're acting like a Corinthian. Why? Because you're sleeping around and because you're getting drunk all the time. And so the citizens of Corinth, they knew how to work hard. They knew how to play hard. They knew how to party hard. But they were also known for their religious idolatry. Corinth was, was steeped in pagan um, religion in the city. And by the way, if you go to Corinth today, you can see a lot of the ruins from the first century AD. A lot of the things that's talked about in Acts chapter 17 and 18, it's still there today. And so back then and still today, um, right there, back then it was in the middle of town. Today, it's right outside of town. There was an Acropolis. An Acropolis is simply a high hill. And so right in the middle of town, there was this Acropolis, and on top of the high hill was the temple to the pagan goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of sexual love. Now, get this. The temple of Aphrodite employed over 1,000 priestesses. These priestesses were basically religious prostitutes. And so at nighttime, over a thousand priest, uh, priestesses or religious prostitutes would go down into the city of Corinth 
and they would sell their bodies in order to raise money for their pagan religion. How many of you guys think by now that Corinth was a mess? <laughs> but right in the middle of that mess, God led the Apostle Paul to plant a brand new church. And some would think, why in the world would God do that? Well, here it is. The first point today is because Corinth was a city in need of a Savior. God led the Apostle Paul to travel to the CZ seaport city of Corinth because Corinth was a city in need of a Savior. You know why? God loved the Corinthians. Now, what we have to understand today is that God loves everyone. How many of you guys really believe that God loves the entire world? Let me see your hand, right? You guys believe that? Now, it's one thing to raise your hand in church, and I'm joining you with my hand. It's one thing to know that in our minds. The question is, do we really believe it in our hearts? Do we really believe that God loves everyone, even people that don't look like us, even the people that don't act like us? What the Bible teaches that God loves everyone, he loves religious people and irreligious people, both. He loves moral people and immoral people, both. God loves, quote-unquote, good people and, quote-unquote, bad people, both. He loves atheists, he loves agnostics, and he loves believers as well. God just loves everybody. Now, I'm going to challenge you with this statement. God loves alcoholics, drug addicts, prostitutes, thieves, gangbangers, people who riot and loot in Baltimore. God loves them. And he loves them as much as nice, religious, moral, upstanding citizens. Do you still believe God loves everybody? Everybody. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what your background is, what you did this past week, what you did this past year, God loves you. And the reason we know that God loves the entire world is that because he demonstrated that love by sending his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world. This is a, a message that's popular, but it's kind of lost in, in current day churches today. One of my, and I told this to first service, one of my um, burdens for today, that God's burdened my heart, is that there's still people in this church that think it's all about moral reform. There's still people in this church that think that there's quote-unquote good people and quote-unquote bad people, and if we, through education and moral reform and new policies, can just get people to come over here and stop being bad people and start being good people, then our world will be a better place. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Listen, the only, the only answer is Jesus Christ, period. I so wish somebody on the news the past couple of weeks in Baltimore would, would have the gumption and the boldness to stand up on national news and say, you know what, there are a lot of problems and we're confused about a lot of things. But one thing we're not confused about, we're not confused that Jesus Christ is the answer for change. He's the only answer, a relationship with him. Listen, a relationship with him, not going to church, being the church, not walking in a religion, having a relationship with the Lord, where his spirit actually lives inside of us and gives us love for unlovely people. So, you remember John three sixteen? remember that verse? God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever, I like that word, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, we all know that verse. Sometimes we forget the very next verse. Look at the very next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to what? But that the world through him might be? Okay, God does not want to condemn the world. It's not in his heart. He wants to save the world. 
And that's why he led Paul, I'll say it again, to the sleaziest seaport city in the Roman Empire because he loved the Corinthians, no matter what they were involved in. And so I don't know if you've noticed, but our country, the United States of America, is becoming more and more like ancient Corinth. More than ever before in the history of our nation, America's, Americans are indulging, right, in every form of immoral pleasure imaginable. It's kind of like this attitude of anything goes is what we have accepted, right, in our country. And that, that attitude of anything goes has permeated our culture like a cancer. So 2,000 years from Acts 18 all the way to where we are today, here's what I know, that America is modern-day Corinth. Now, I don't want anybody answering out loud, okay? Does that mean that God wants to judge America? Does that mean that God wants to wipe America off the face of the planet? Does that mean that God wants to damn America? Because we're modern-day Corinth. Well, before you answer out loud, check this out. The Lord is not willing that anyone should perish, but that how many people? All should come to repentance. Does God want to damn America? No, God doesn't want to damn America. God wants to save America. Now, it's true, America's a mess. But right in the middle of a mess, God has and continues to plant healthy churches all across this nation in many areas of our nation. Now, we got to be careful with our message to the world. This is where sometimes we mess it up as Christians. What is our message to the world? Is our message that, hey, we're really good and we're really righteous and you're not. We got our act together, but you don't. And so we're going to stay over here and you stay over there and then everything is going to be fine. Is that our answer? Is our answer to watch cable news network or Fox News and yell at the screen and get all upset because those people don't act like we do? Is that, that going to do anything good at all? No, not at all. Here's, here's our message. Our message to the world is, guess what? We were once a mess. And the church is still pretty messy today. Right? We were once a mess. We were once lost and lonely and empty and addicted and desperate. But we had a divine encounter with Jesus Christ and he loved us, he forgave us, he changed us, and now we've been made new, not because we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and willed it to be so, but because he came into our lives and he changed everything. That's our message to the world. And when we preach that message to the world, a message of love and a message of grace, when we preach that message to the world, it's up to them what they do with that message. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But, but, but what I want to understand, I want, what, what I want you guys to understand is this. I want you to understand that when someone turns to Christ in faith and repentance, the Spirit of God comes in. And that is the change agent, okay? That's what you gotta get. That's what you gotta get. That's the only way we're gonna change. I know that for a fact because I lived it as an individual. I came to know Jesus when I was 17 years old. Here's what I know, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's the truth. Before I came to know Jesus, my mind was in the gutter. As a teenage young man, my mind was constantly in the gutter. And I would try to change myself. I would go to church. I would try to do better. And I would still continue to fall. But then, when I finally got it through my thick skull and into my heart, that it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his spirit, he has changed us. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. When I finally understood that I had to turn to Christ in faith and he was the only answer, his spirit came inside of me. And guess what? He took my mind out of the gutter. He changed me. I couldn't pull myself up through self-effort to change myself. I needed outside help. And that's our message as the church. 
It's not come be like us. Come be righteous like us. Come reform yourself morally. It's come to Jesus and he will change you. That's our message. Now, here's the part some people don't want to hear. When he comes in, he changes. A lot of people who are playing church, they've said a little prayer, but they haven't changed. They're not really following Jesus. That's one of the big reasons Paul wrote his letter to the church of Corinth. Because a lot of people in the church of Corinth were still living the same old life they used to live. Now I want you to see this passage. We're going to get there later in our verse-by-verse study, but here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But check out the good news. And such were, everybody say were. And such were some of you, he says to the Corinthians in the church. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so the church of Corinth was filled with people who used to be fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous people, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. But they had a divine encounter with Jesus Christ, and he washed them, he sanctified them, he justified them, he changed them. Now, that's the message that's unpopular today. The message that's popular is God loves everybody. But there's more to it than that. God loves you too much to leave, or leave you where you're at. And so what he wants to do is he wants to change you because the things that you're doing are, are not helpful, they're hurtful. The things that you're doing are hurting you and they're hurting others around you, especially your spouse, especially your kids and your grandkids. And so he says, I want to send my spirit into your heart as the change agent so that you can also say, I used to be that, but now by God's grace, I am this. He wants to transform us. Now, the Apostle Paul experienced this transformation. And he knew all about the transformation of the touch of God's grace through Jesus in his life. Paul was not immoral in his BC days. He was not um, a drunkard in his BC days but he had a sin in his life that was just as bad. We don't recognize it as just as bad, but it was just as bad. Paul was a self-righteous legalist. Did you know that Paul was a terrorist? You say, what? Yeah, just like there's Muslim terrorists today who are spreading their religion through the sword. I'm not saying all Muslims are like that at all. I'm saying that there are militant there's a militant group within Islam that is trying to spread their religion with the sword. We call them terrorists. Guess what? In the first century AD, the, the, who, he, was, he, he, he is the Apostle Paul, but before that, Saul of Tarsus spread his religion with the sword. In his BC days, he hunted down, imprisoned, and murdered followers of Jesus Messiah. He was so self-righteous and he thought that this little sect within Judaism of Christ followers, the way, right? These people of the way, that they're a cult, they're spreading their disease into Judaism and so I'm the self-righteous moral guy and so I'm going to hunt them down, I'm going to attack them, I'm going to kill them to keep the purity of Judaism. It's called terrorism. He killed people. And then one day, on the road to Damascus, in the back of a camel, a donkey, a horse, we don't know. What we do know is a bright light shining from heaven, 
um, uh, that it knocked him down off his high self-righteous horse and Saul of Tarsus was laying in the dirt and he had a divine encounter with Jesus Christ. And you know what happened? The Spirit of God came inside of him after he confessed his faith in Christ as Lord and what happened was that Paul changed. He went from a self-righteous legalist to the biggest proponent of grace in the history of the church. He wrote for us the doctrine of grace formally in the book of Romans. He is the champion of grace. Why? He met Jesus. And so when he met Jesus, man, how many of you guys know when you really met, meet Jesus and he changes you, you got to tell somebody, right? If you're not telling anybody, I wonder if he's changed you. You got to tell somebody. And so that's why, once again, he traveled to the sleazy seaport city of Corinth to plant a church. To find out how he planted that church, now we're going to look at Acts chapter 18. And so we'll start now in verse 1. We're going to quickly go through 11 verses and make application. Okay, so after these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. Okay, so you have the emperor in that day was Claudius, the Roman emperor, and he was an anti-Semite. Just like dic countless dictators throughout the two last 2,000 years and before the time of Christ, he um, persecuted the Jews. He kicked all the Jews out of Italy. Priscilla, Aquila, a Jewish couple, they have to leave. They're forced from their home, from their jobs, and so they end up in Corinth. And it says at the end of verse 2 that Paul came to them. Verse 3, so because he, Paul, was of the same trade, he stayed with them and he worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. Because they're all tent makers, they all become really good friends. It's assumed here that Paul leads them to Christ, begins to disciple them. So now we pick it up in verse 4. It says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. That's Saturday. So he'd go down to the local Jewish synagogue on Saturday to share his faith. And he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And so we see that there's some Gentile proselytes to Judaism, some Greeks that are hanging out at the synagogue, and now they're hearing about Jesus. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit, and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So we see here that Paul gets busy. He goes to Corinth to plant a church, and he gets busy. How, how does he get busy? Well, he spends the weekdays discipling a new Christian couple, a Jewish Christian couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and then he spends every Saturday evangelizing the Jews and some Greeks um, in the local synagogue. So the work has begun. Verse 6, but when they, there's always a but in Acts, so you go through it, there's always good news and bad news, right? All right, so verse 6, but when they, that's some hardened Jews in the local synagogue in Corinth. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and he said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So here Paul is. Can you picture him Saturday at the local synagogue? His friends come from the north, Paul and, uh, I'm sorry, Silas and Timothy. When they come, as often, friends, they encourage you. The Holy Spirit compels him. And like, no, no, like never before, now Paul is preaching in a Jewish synagogue that Jesus is Messiah. Now, as he's preaching that message, some are believing, but others are rejecting the message. And of those people that are rejecting his message, some in that group are now saying derogatory things about Jesus. It's called blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Blasphemy is whenever somebody says something derogatory about God. How many of you guys believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that in our church this morning? Right? 
He is. Absolutely. That's the doctrine that separates Christianity, true Christianity, from all the other religions and cults. Jesus is God, the miracle of incarnation. Christmas we celebrate it every year. God became man. And so they're saying derogatory things about Jesus. That's called blasphemy. And so Paul gets angry, righteous anger here. And what does he do? He's probably got some kind of robe on, right? He takes the robe, he begins to shake it in front of all of them. And then what does he say? He says, and I quote, he says, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. Now, what does that mean? I personally believe that the Apostle Paul was referring to a passage way back in Ezekiel. You don't have to turn there. In just a little while, we'll put the verse up on the screen. But Ezekiel was a 6th century B.C. prophet. Okay, and so in Ezekiel's day, 6th century B.C., Back then, of course, they didn't have radar, right? And so they had walled cities. And so they put these big walls around the cities, and then they would put watchmen on the walls. And the, 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 the duty of the watchmen was to look out for enemy invaders. If a watchman saw an enemy invader miles away, he would then pick up his trumpet. In those days, not a brass trumpet, it's a ram's horn. And he would blow that ram's horn. And that would be a warning to all the citizens within that walled city to prepare for battle. Now, if he blows the horn as the enemy approaches and the people inside ignore the warning and then that enemy gets in and kills those people, the blood of the slain is on their own heads. Why? The watchman warned them. He blew the trumpet. But if the watchman was asleep on the job and the enemy's coming and he doesn't blow the trumpet to warn them, or maybe he's mad at some government official in the city and he doesn't blow the trumpet, whatever his motive is, if he doesn't sound the warning and the enemy attacks and the enemy kills the people in the city, the blood of the slain is on the head of the watchman. And so the Apostle Paul, first century A.D., standing in a local Jewish synagogue, preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. Some of the people reject Jesus as their Messiah. He shakes his garments, and what does he say to them? He says, your blood's on your own heads, your own hands. Now look at what God said to Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, so you son of man, I have made you a what? a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked, to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Paul says to those Jews in the synagogue and some Greeks, I am a watchman. I am warning you. I'm blowing the trumpet. Right? There's only one way to God, it's through his son, Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. No religion can get you to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's no way you can have your sins forgiven except by the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, right? Whatever he's saying, he's preaching the gospel to them, and then he says, I've sounded the warning. Judgment day is coming. You need to turn to Christ. Their response, who is this Jesus? And they begin to say derogatory things about Jesus. Paul shakes his garments. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Now, here's my point. Even though they rejected, some of them rejected Paul's message, Paul had peace in his heart 
because he did his part. Did you guys hear that? Even though they rejected his message, Paul had peace in his heart because he had done his part. He blew the trumpet. Now, when you and I share the love and the message of Jesus with people, sometimes people are going to be so eager, right? They're going to hang on every word that we're saying to them. And they're going to eagerly give their lives to Jesus and start following Jesus, right? They're like ripe fruit. But other times, people are going to say, thanks, but no thanks. Sometimes, some of those people are even going to start saying derogatory things about Jesus. Now, when that happens, as you share, you can still have peace in your heart. Why? Because you did your part. You shared. The ball's in their court. Just recently, I got to share the love of Jesus with two different people. One person accepted it totally happy, excited. The other person, whatever, right? And guess what? I have peace in my heart. Why? I did my part. I'm so glad years ago, a mentor of mine said, Mike, because I, I get discouraged, man, when people didn't want to listen to my message or to the message of, of God's word, whether it was Christian or non-Christian, I would get discouraged about it. And years ago, a mentor in my life said, said this. He said, Mike, if they don't receive your ministry, just go on your way. It's okay. And if some of you guys need to hear that. Because some of you are trying and trying and trying um, to, to, to preach the love of Jesus to someone who's just not open. And what did Paul do? Paul left and he went next door to Justice's house to plant the church. Let me tell you something. When Jesus was on the cross paying for our sins, there's two thieves. One accepts the message, the other one doesn't. Did Jesus turn the one who didn't? Was he pleading with them, please, you don't understand. In just a couple hours, you're going to go off into eternity in your sins. You're going to die in your sins. Please just turn to me. Come on, you don't want to. Did Jesus do that? No. No. And so the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And so Paul turns he goes away. Now look at verse 7. It says that he departed from there and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now here's the good news. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. And so here's where it gets exciting. Paul goes to the sleazy seaport city to plant a church, and now, guess what? The Holy Spirit's working, and many people are receiving Christ, including the ruler of the synagogue, right? And they're being baptized, and so the church is starting to grow. Things are taking off. Look at verse 9. And then the Lord spoke to Paul in, night, in the night by a vision, and he said, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Now, just time out real quick. Everybody look at me for just a second. Paul was one of the most bold witnesses for Christ in the history of the church. But the Lord has to appear to Paul in a vision and say to the apostle Paul, do not be afraid. Why did God have to say that to Paul? Because Paul was, he was afraid. The Apostle Paul? Yeah. Just like you're afraid sometimes. And just like I'm afraid sometimes. And Jesus has to come to us and say, hey, don't be afraid. Hey, it's okay. Speak. Don't be ashamed of me. Speak out. And so that's the message today. The message today is, church family, we got to speak out. The message today is we got to be more outwardly focused. The message today is we can't just look at ourselves and always minister to ourselves in the church. We got to, as Jesus said, put our eyes on the field for they are, they are already ripe unto harvest. So look at now at verse 10. He says, for I am with you. It's okay, Paul. Don't be afraid. Speak. I'm with you. No one's going to attack you or hurt you. 
for I have many people in this city. And he continued there, Paul stayed there in Corinth, a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. Paul, successful in this church plant. Why? The hand of Jesus was upon him. Corinth, a city in need of a savior. Now, I know of another city that needs a savior. Anybody want to take a guess what city that is? Check it out. <laughs> Poor St. Lucie is a city in need of a savior. Now, Barna did some research just this year. This is hot off the press, okay? What I'm about to tell you right now. Barna did a study this year to determine what are the most unchurched cities in America. And so when he looked at all the cities, all the metropolitan areas in our nation, they did this study and they wanted to find out which metropolitan area has the highest percentage of unchurched people in those areas. And I was alarmed when I read it because our area right here is pretty high on the list. Check this out. Unchurched people, the most unchurched metropolitan areas, number one, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose. Number two, Burlington, Plattsburgh. Number three, Boston, Massachusetts. And I have to say that that didn't surprise me at all because, you know, the Red Sox fans are there and <laughs> Patriot fans are there. And so, hey, it's no wonder, right? First service, I apologize for that. I, I'm not going to apologize just yet. All right. But, but look, check it out, ladies and gentlemen. Number 11, that's us. That's poor St. Lucie. Why? We're right in between West Palm and Fort Pierce. So in the United States of America, we are the 11th most unchurched metropolitan area in, in our area, in the nation. Now, how many people do we have in poor St. Lucie? Approximately 171,000 people in our city. What does that mean? That means in our city, out of the 171,000 people, if Barna is right, about 82,000 people right here in our city within a 15-minute drive in any direction, 82,000 people are unchurched. Unchurched, by the way, means people who have not attended a church service outside of um, special occasions like Easter. Everybody goes to church on Easter, right? We're not talking about that but someone who has not gone to church um, for at least six months, but often it's a lot longer than that. We are number 11. 82,000 people in our city are unchurched. By the way, did you guys hear that our city council members right here in Port St. Lucie just recently gave initial approval unanimously for Christ Fellowship to buy the, the former digital domain building. Do you guys hear that? Right? Now, they have one more meeting, from what I understand, on May 11th um, to get final approval, but it looks, it looks really good for that to happen. And I am excited. You say, why are you excited, Pastor Mike? Here's why. There's 82,000 people in our city that are unchurched and need the Lord. Now, Stacy and I, my wife and I used to go to Christ Fellowship back in the 90s, 20 years ago. We were involved um, heavily in that church. Uh, still today, we have close relationships of people in leadership in that church. I just this past week sent them a message. I attached this uh, study, by the way. And I said, man, I'm so excited that it looks like you guys are coming up to help us spread the message of the love of Jesus throughout our city because our city needs it so much. And so just so you know, Calvary, poor St. Lucie, the Christ Fellowship is not our competition. They're our partners in the gospel. We believe. Hey, we believe in the big C church. And we're so excited that, man, more of a witness is going to happen here on the Treasure Coast. Now, put your seatbelts on for this one. Barna did another study to, to, to determine what cities have the highest percentage of never-churched people. All right, never-churched people are people who have never in their lives regularly attended a church. Guess who's number one on the list? Check it out. Our area. 
hot off the press this year. I'm not quoting something that's 15, 20 years old. Our area. Ladies and gentlemen, we're on the mission field. I mean, it's great if God calls you to Africa or God calls you to Nepal, God calls you to Haiti. That's awesome. I'm so happy for you. But guess what? Most of us need to stay here. And we need to share the love and the message, not just through our words, but also through our deeds, that, that Christ is better, man, better than anything that the world has to offer. So we have a choice as believers. We can live in a Christian bubble where all our friends are Christian people, right? And we can continue to do life in that way, or we can make a decision as a church that we're going to become more missional. You say, what does that mean? It means outreach-focused. Now, I believe that churches should be attractional. What does that mean? That means that, man, the, our church should be so healthy and the Spirit of God moving so much in our church that when people follow Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some, right, but, 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 but encouraging one another as you see the day approaching. Okay, so when people come to church, they should find a healthy church where the Spirit of God is moving and they should have an encounter with the Lord, right? That's an attractional church. Come and see but you can't just come and see. We have to go and tell because not everybody's gonna come and see. And so what does that sign say as you're leaving our parking lot? Go and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations are right here on the Treasure Coast. Every nation's right here. And we are called, right, to reach out to them because most of them are not gonna come here. They don't know what we're doing on Sunday mornings. For all they know, I'm up here handling snakes. You guys are running around, swinging from chandeliers, right? They have no idea. They're not going to come near this place. But if you go to them, not just with your talk, but with your walk, and the Lord's working on their hearts, wow, we don't know what could happen. Now, we have to be more missional-minded, so here's, here's some practical ways as we start to wrap this up. There's five practical ways that we can be missional-minded, and that, there's a lot more than that. You guys can come up with your own. I thought of a bunch more later on, like through social media, through Servolution. Praise God, man. All, so many of you went throughout our community just doing, um, 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 integrating your, your good deeds with your good, uh, the good, the good news of Christ, right? So you're, 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 you're going to places, you're helping out in practical ways, and then often that opens up doors of conversation. I praise God for that. This is not a comprehensive list, but this list hits on some of the big ones. We have to be more missional-minded in our relationships. I personally believe the most effective means of evangelism is friendship evangelism. That means you're getting to know somebody. They're seeing your life. And you know what? They're noticing something's different. They're not going to tell you that, but they're noticing something's different about that guy, that gal. They're always picking people up. They're not tearing them down. Everybody else is gossiping. They never gossip. Man, man, when you need somebody to help you out, they're the first one there. Right? And so it's through relationships with friends, family, neighbors, coworkers that we have an opportunity as we're living our lives before them that God opens up doors of opportunity to share. You say, how do I know when that door is open? You will know. It's so obvious. And then, listen, listen, you got to blow the trumpet. You can't just live a good life in front of them. You've got to share, verbally share as a watchman. You share that Jesus is the only way, right? Then the ball is in their court, and if they reject the message, you can have peace in your heart. You've done your part. Another way is through invite cards. Everybody grab your invite card that's on your seat. We put these invite cards there every other week because we want you to have a great tool. How many times have I been in situations when I'm in a conversation with somebody, I know it's from the Lord, and I, I, I tell them about the church, and then I, and it's a, what's the name of that church? Uh, it's Calvary. Cavalry? Like, dun, 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 no, no, no. 
C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. Where are you guys located? We're, we're over in, in the St. James area. What time's your service? It's, it's 9, everyone, everybody say 9 and 11.15. Because some of you in the church still think it's 11.30. just want to remind you of that. And guess what? They walk away, and I'm thinking, I got I to gotta put something in their hands. I open my wallet. Ugh, I don't have an invite card. I've been there a hundred times. I give these cards out all the time, right? But what a great tool to put into their hands. Now, most of the time, they're not going to come the next Sunday. That's okay, because you know what happens? A lot of times, that is on their bedroom dresser, sometimes for months, and everything's okay, hunky-dory in their life. They don't need that. But then when trouble comes and tension comes or transition comes into their life, all of a sudden is, oh, maybe I'll check this place out, and they come. And so use these. For those of you who are really zealous about this, we have a bunch at the Welcome Center uh, to go with the one that's on your seats. Witnessing team. Jack is amazing. His team is amazing. They've been doing this now for 10 years. Every other Thursday, they go out and they share the gospel. And so, man, if that's you, the information is always in your program. Check it out. Talk to Jack. He's at the Welcome Center after every service. Church services. Now, help me out on this one. I'm almost done. Stay with me here, okay? Church services. For whatever reason, the Lord is sending hundreds of people here. I know that because our database has thousands of names in our database. And guess what? Hundreds of people that call Calvary their church home, they only come like once every month or once every two months. They haven't yet gotten connected. Okay? We need your help. We need all, whatever, 600 people in this room. We need your help because we're only, we have 17 on staff. We need your help, right? Here's how you can help. After Zach, um, um, every Sunday, gives our closing um, song to the Lord, right? Don't just make a beeline to your car. I understand sometimes you got somewhere to go. That's fine. But most of the time, would you help us? Would you hang out in the foyer, in the cafe, in the courtyard? And then instead of hanging out with your friends, would you approach someone you don't know? Now, you got to smile. Let's practice. Everybody smile. You got to smile, right? And, and, and by the way, invite cards, okay, do not, I'm not going to smile on this one, do not leave an invite card at a restaurant with a measly 5% tip. Do not leave an invite card unless you have a minimum 20% tip or higher. Don't do that. Don't do that. But we're not on that. We're on church services. Okay, so when you go out, right, to the courtyard, the cafe, go up to somebody you don't know. Hey, are you in a life group? Hey, are you serving anywhere? Hey, what's your name? My name is this. You never know how the Lord could use you, right? Because eventually, maybe not now, eventually they could become lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. They could become the next Apostle Paul. The Lord wants to use you. But they don't feel engaged. And I've been told this at the Welcome Center Pastor Mike, your church has a bunch of clicks in it. And it breaks my heart because everybody's over with their friends, little groups of friends. Hey, we can do better than that. Don't just go to church. Be the church. Engage people you don't know. Please, somebody say amen here. Amen. Man, don't leave me out to dry. And the final one, you're going to hear a lot more about this from me and Pastor Jacob, is life groups. Wouldn't it be great in the fall if in our life groups, and one day our dream is to have well over 100 groups all over the Treasure Coast, all throughout neighborhoods. But wouldn't it be great in the fall if our life groups didn't just minister to each other as Christians? Wouldn't it be great if people in life groups would begin to invite their unchurched friend or their unchurched neighbor to that life group to have a meal? Wouldn't that be awesome? Thank you, half of you. Thank you, half of you. Wouldn't that be awesome? Right? Wouldn't that be awesome because most of them won't come here, but they may go into your home. They see your life. They develop a friendship. God opens doors. 
Now, I'm out of time, so here's how we're going to end the service. If you today heard what I had to say, and if you today would like to make, to make a commitment as a Christian to be more missional-minded or more outreach-focused in all these different areas, maybe some more the Lord puts on your heart, but if that is your commitment and you would like to pray about that commitment with you, I'm going to ask you right now to stand to your feet for our closing prayer. If you want to make that commitment before the Lord, as a person who knows the Lord, who's a Christian, you want to be more outreach-minded, more missional in your thinking and in your acting, just stand to your feet wherever you are. Eighty-two thousand people. Look up. The fields are ripe under harvest. God's calling you. God's calling me. One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.